and we appreciate you being with us today. If you guys have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the book of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, we're concluding our time in this really good, really helpful book. And next week, we're going to start walking through the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew. So we are in Malachi chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, I spent some time in Oklahoma recently, and as I was driving through the state, my person who was driving me said, hey, have you ever heard of Tornado Alley? And I said, yes, of course, we all have heard. And he said, that, that's it. And, every, and he points over to the right and shows me the numerous uh, buildings that are there, and he said, none of those are constructed well because they're planning to have to build them again. That's a really hard thing to hear and a hard thing to consider. We don't really have Tornado Alley here, uh, but our church is on Cholesterol Corner. If you pulled into the parking lot today, you notice that there are lots of options for you that are uh, fast food delicious. I'm not sure how you feel about such. But if you look around, you'll notice that there is a Whataburger and there is a Popeye's. And as I look at these restaurants, I begin to think, you know, I wonder how many times those lines are backed up because people go through the line and they offer up a really specific order. Just so we can have a truthful moment in here in the year of our Lord, 2021, on the last day of June. How many of you just order off the menu standard when you go through a restaurant? Anybody? Okay, how many of you guys have a special order for the restaurant when you go through to order? Okay, so if you go to Popeye's, even if you order the standard at Popeye's, their chicken sandwich I think is really good um, if it's done properly. The problem is it's only done properly three out of every 100 times. But specific orders really do confuse people. Um, probably the place that is the most confusing is Starbucks. There are numerous Reddit threads about orders that people like to give at Starbucks. And I found one that I want to read to you. Someone goes through the drive-thru at Starbucks. I'm new to Starbucks. Started drinking coffee in September of... Uh, really drinking it in September of 2020 because it was time to stop drinking soda. And I've had numerous conversations about, oh, we probably need to back off of that budget-wise. But when you drive through at Starbucks, you place your order. And if the line is long, it's because you have those people in front of you. One of those people specifically ordered this. The title of the Reddit thread is, 41 pumps, please. This person has ordered a Trenti iced coffee. Anybody do the Trenti? Okay, that's like, just give me a gallon jug full of your coffee. Trenti iced coffee, 12 pumps of sugar-free vanilla, 12 pumps of sugar-free hazelnut, 12 pumps of sugar-free caramel, 12 five pumps of skinny mocha, a splash of soy, coffee to the star on the siren's head. That's basing your coffee on the d decor of the cup. A and ice double-blended. What would you think if that person came through the line and you were working at Starbucks besides throwing that drink through the window at them? What would be even more fun for us is if when they would come through the line, you're working there, I'm working there, and rather than give them the entirety of this drink together, we would just hand them the various items one at a time. Here are your 41 uh, pumps that you've requested in small little cups. Here is everything that you've asked for. Sometimes when we read through the Bible, we, we like to digest it in a way where it's almost uh, pieces of a, a menu or pieces of a menu or pieces of a, a recipe. 
That it is so separated out that the pastor deals with the text. So let's just give the people... And they break down the text like that. And there are numerous times when various writers of the Bible who give us that idea of what Scripture teaches. They kind of break down the teaching. You look through Paul in the book of Romans, and for the most part, it is very structural. It is easy to break down. However, many times when we're dealing with Old Testament authors, it doesn't work like that. You're not so much dealing with a text that you can take and break apart into piece, 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 piece. You have an, an idea that's swirling around together. An idea that works together. Everything is infused together. And the phrase that I use in here regularly is, I want to give you what is a clean outline to a messy story. But just know this, when we look in the book of Malachi today, we're seeing that there are certain ideas and concepts in this passage that are swimming together, swirling together, and they are for the good of God's people to help us be more like Jesus, to help take our thoughts to Jesus. So here they are. This passage does call us these three ideas, that we would repent of our sins, that we would remember His Word, and that we would ready ourselves. One more time, that we would repent of our sins, we would remember his word, and we would ready ourselves. As you go through the, God, the, rather the book of Malachi, the prophet lets us know that there are these six oracles, or six burdens of the writer, six burdens of the prophet as he approaches this nation. And those burdens are, are heavy on him because it is an interaction that's taking place between God, Yahweh, and the people of Israel. And Yahweh keeps confronting in the people the places where they are uh, taking him for granted. Maybe you've felt taken for granted. Maybe you've taken someone for granted. Maybe you've not realized that either one of those things was taking place. Burden one, as we mentioned, was that God says to the nation of Israel, I have loved you. And the reply of the people is not one of gratitude, but one of, uh, really, how have you really loved us? Uh, God would say to them in burden two that, that, he has, that they have despised his name and their reply was not one of repentance but one of... Tell me how we despised your name again. Burden three, God says that you've defiled me at the altar and how have we defiled you? Burden four, how have we wearied or worn you? Burden five, how have we robbed you that we dealt with last, night from Malachi, last week from Malachi three? And today's burden is... Yahweh himself saying to the people of Israel, You have said these things against me. So if you'll join with me in the text in verse 13 of the passage, your words against me, they're harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. Well, what have we gained by keeping his requirements and walked mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and he listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had a high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies. They're my very own possession on the day I'm preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For look, the day is coming, chapter 4, 
burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will, will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked. For they will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day I'm preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant. The statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise I will come and I will strike the land with a curse. When we read the, this last piece of the book of Malachi, we are reading the conclusion of the Hebrew story. The conclusion of the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament, contrary to popular belief, is one unified story. It's, it's one story with a thread that has it all intertwined together. We can link the idea of Genesis with what takes place in Malachi. This common theme. Recurring theme. And, this, and the theme is basically this. That these are a hard-hearted people who have rebelled against Yahweh. And as you read and ponder and consider Scripture, Yahweh says, it shows the rebellion and the wickedness and the sin of the people. Any of us who've ever spent time in an Old Testament book, one of our discipleship groups, they've spent much of the year in an Old Testament, in the entirety of the Old Testament. And it brings questions over and over to you. These questions are, that if you consider your Scripture, does it show rebellion? Does it show wickedness? Does it show sin? And as God reveals those things to you about the nation of Israel, is that going to show you your rebellion, your wickedness, your sin? As we look at a people who are far from God, does it help to uh, really show us that we are far from God? That we, there's distance between us and Him? God, and He says to them, Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask... What have we spoken against you? The most confusing thing about the, the status and the stature and the place of the heart of the people we read about in the book of Malachi is that every time God brings an accusation against them, though there are numerous places where you can see that accusation being problematic and even right there for them to observe, they never, ever, ever think they are the problem. It's always someone else's problem. It's all, always someone else's situation. You've said it's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping His requirements? And walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God <coughs> and they escape. In short, the nation of Israel, at the point of the writing of this letter, God is saying to them, I can hear you over and over saying, this isn't very fair. This is not fair at all. It doesn't seem right for God to behave like this. It doesn't seem right that God would look at the wickedness of those people and overlook it. Yet He would allow me to deal with trials and tribulations. Sometimes we look at the nation of Israel in the, in the Old Testament and they are murmuring in a way that, as if they don't believe that God is really listening. Parents, we know what that feels like, right? Hypothetically, of course, in your home. You, you have a child that you have addressed and given direct directions to, and I repeat that intentionally. 
And after you have given your direct directions, that child walks away and there's this thing taking place where they are kind of mumbling, but you know they're mumbling and they not at our house, but you know they're mumbling, they know you're mumbling, everyone's just, we know that's happening, but they don't want you to really notice, they just want to get it out. Israel plays the part of the passive-aggressive character in this passage. They play the part of the passive-aggressive child at your home who walks away mumbling to Yahweh, not realizing that he can hear everything they're saying. This is not fair. What's not fair? Why is it that this Yahweh, who claims to be so big and bold and grandiose, why does he not intervene more with the wickedness in the world? And as we evaluate that, we are coming from the perspective, this singular perspective, that him dealing with wickedness means that he would not deal with us. Why does God not intervene? Let me ask us this question this morning. What takes place if God intervenes and we don't like it? What takes place when God does something that, does not, that we do not view as acceptable? Have we moved our position and our view of God from one where He has not intervened to one where He is intervening and overstepping His God bounds? Also, we're forced to consider this. If God actively intervened every time there, w- there was wickedness, we'd always be begging Him to stop. I had a friend who lives in, lived in New Orleans during Katrina, and there were numerous rantings and ravings from people about from outside of that area, of course about how that was the judgment of God on a people. That God would strike down New Orleans for its wickedness. And as we were pondering and considering and conversing over this, I said, yeah, if God's, going to, if God's going to strike down New Orleans like that, why would He not strike down Las Vegas or strike down Atlantic City? And He stopped me and, and very rightfully said, why would He not strike down 1511 Rebecca Drive, Apartment B, which is where I lived at the time? God's, re- God's response to wickedness is not based on what we view as the most wicked. Simply because we have decided that our wickedness is palatable does not make it any more acceptable. What does God do with wickedness? It's a very individualistic view of God that ignores corporate and community and the God is the God of the whole world idea that permeates the whole of this Bible and the entirety of it. When we look into the Scriptures, we see this God cares about sin. That He cares about wickedness. But for us, it's the God of the Western Hemisphere 2021 at work when we say God should do something about that and that has nothing to do with us. At that time, verse 16, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. This seems to be an important conversation for those who are God's people to circle up and begin to chat about what God is doing. It's a discussion of trust and commitment and awe of Yahweh. It reminds us there are faithful people in the midst. And as these faithful people read it, they're going to remember God's faithfulness and feel more secure in His promises. As the people of God circle around His promises, we find security in what, is a, in what will take place because of His safety He's given us in what has taken place. 
We're a task-driven people, and if we're not careful, we are going to perform and forget the reason that we're performing tasks. I don't know if you are like me, but I've got numerous text threads I'm on with with really important people to me. Family members and and friends. I've got a text thread with all of my family members, and we text about things. And as we text, there will be images shared from time to time and and videos shared from time to time. And those videos are never a task for us. They are always an overflow of the heart of the thing that we love. And another one of my text threads, the one that I've shared with you about, that used to be called Peyton is the goat, and then it was changed to Peyton is a goat, and then I changed it to your mom is a goat. Uh, when we look at this text thread, there are numerous conversations taking place. None of them are task-oriented. They are all com- 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 conversationally oriented, wrapped around things that matter to us. We, we talk about the idea of what's important, what we value. We talk about things that, that are important, people that are important. Pictures of things like Gus. Just lots of pictures of Gus these days. Gus has grown on me uh, for whatever reason, like a fungus. And when things grow, you just love them and you want to share and chat about those. You know, we've had this world of us being people who would live and talk about Jesus, think about Jesus, consider Jesus. And we've always really taken it to the idea of the task. We want to be people who are sharing our faith. But if we are not careful, we sprint ahead to sharing our faith with no celebration of why that faith is worth sharing. That this Jesus is a conversation that is worth having. That it is important for us to talk about him with friends in the same way that we talk about things that we love. It's an, he's, he's an old friend who is always renewing himself to us. To be God's people... The nation of Israel has this small remnant in this passage that repents of their wickedness, repents of their overstepping. And they listened. They listened and they listed out all of the things that Yahweh had done. Verse 16, the Lord took notice and and He listened. He hears their prayers. He sees their consideration. He wrestles. He considers their thoughts. So the people wrote a book of remembrance. It was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. A book of remembrance. Remembering all of this good stuff. In 2021, it's an iCloud folder dedicated to everything that is whatever year it may happen to be. A book of remembrance considering all the good that God has done. In the ancient world, it's much more than that. We can see it throughout the history of these ancient peoples. A book of remembrance is a royal archive and it is significant. It's, and it tells of the important things that took place in a king's reign. Uh, we can see a reference to it in the book of Esther. There's a book of remembrance for all of the, for all of the winds of Artaxerxes. We can look and we can see this, that it's a book that you would keep. Yahweh would call these people to keep to affirm their covenant loyalty. And for every moment that seemed as if they had nowhere to stand, they look at the book and they remember that that he's actually holding them while they're there. They listened. By remembering God's faithfulness, they could rest in his promises And the Lord even affirms that in verse 17. He he says this, They will be mine, says the Lord of armies. They are my own possession on the day that I'm preparing. They're mine, and I'm moving in a direction, but I'm not going to forget my people. 
It's the, stat, it's, the, it's the status of this nation as God's very people. A status of them being the people through whom Messiah would come. God goes on to say, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. It's looping back through to the idea of what he said about, if I'm your father, where's the honor due me? God says, you're my children, I'm your father, and I'm going to care for you in that way. This merciful compassion, this overwhelming loving kindness. So you again will see the difference from the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Yahweh is saying that there is a day coming where God will declare His justice by separating the righteous from the wicked. And God keeps pointing these people and He keeps pointing us to the past to inspire hope in the future. I don't know what your past moments of the faithfulness of God are, but as much as we want to run forward and run ahead as to what will happen, would we at times just look back to what He's done? Pointing us to the Messiah of what's taken place in our past. As God takes this nation of Israel to the past, He points them to the Sabbath. One pastor points out that as God takes us to the Sabbath that you see in the book of Genesis, that's actually showing us the, the real Sabbath, the true Sabbath that we will find in Yeshua, this Jesus who is coming. As we look back to the deliverance in the book of Exodus, where they were taken away from, sin, from captivity to the Egyptians... God's pointing us to His true deliverance and His true deliverer who is Jesus who will come, who will deliver us not from captivity to a nation which was limited in time, but will deliver us to unlimited freedom in the person of Jesus. We go to a place of real rest, a place of real deliverance, a place of real freedom. That's the place that God keeps taking these people to as they remember. It's the idea of we ain't seen nothing yet. That's bad grammar. It's good Bible. God is going to do massive things in His people. Yahweh continues, says this as we move on to chapter 4. For look, the day is coming and it is burning like a furnace. When all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, not leaving them root or branches. At this point in the text, God is duly going to describe what His righteous judgment does to both the, the wicked and the righteous. He goes on to say in verse 2, But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from a stall. Now, that's not so kind in the year of our Lord 2021 for God to call you a cow jumping in a stall. But what he's pointing out to us is God is making things new. God is working something new as we remember what he's done. You look at the text and you begin to see God dealing with wickedness like, like a fiery furnace. It's a graphic, detailed account about God's pending judgment on sin. This is not hesitation, it is evisceration. It is complete removal. God removing sin from His presence. God dealing with sin simultaneously 
God gives us this hope of what He's doing for the sake of righteousness. The same heat that is applied to wickedness offers light to those who are in Christ Jesus who are right. This passage is pointing us to that. This dual idea, binary idea, running side by side simultaneously, that God will judge sin and God will offer blessing, which is the whole scope of New Testament teaching. Because it is on the cross of Jesus where God deals with wickedness and offers blessing. For those who are in Him, there is deliverance. For those who are apart from Him, there is no deliverance. God doing a saving work. That's who God is. What does this teach us about this Yahweh? We can look into verse 2 and we can see the offerings about the Son of Righteousness which takes us to what we see in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke where the woman with the issue of blood reaches out to take hold of the, of the garment of Jesus because there is healing in the cloak of a rabbi because he would spread, spread that like wings. It's the idea of God's deliverance and God meeting the needs of people and healing them. God removing what was, what was broken and making all things new and all things whole. God says in verse 3, You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day I'm preparing. God dealing with sin and delivering His people. What does this teach us about Yahweh? The idea that He would judge sin... And deliver his people. It teaches us that judgment is inevitable, but restoration is possible. And I think that we read through texts like this and we consider the people who are the really bad sinners in our lives, which are never us. And we forget that God is capable of delivering that person from whatever their wicked situation is. We've almost created this scale of what we view as acceptable and what we view as unacceptable. And it it moves along this this spectrum. That person is really bad off. God's going to have to get a hold of him. Forgetting that it was that God who got a hold of a 7th grade you. And your deliverance was just as necessary as that person's deliverance. You placing your hope in Yahweh is the same hope that that person has been called to put their faith in. When you read through this text, it teaches us that this Yahweh is always at work. But he's taking us somewhere. Remember the instructions of Moses, he says in verse 4, my servant. The statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Those are all remember language. Remember what took place when Moses was out in the wilderness. He was moving place to place. He talked to a bush that's on fire. Remember that. But also, keep in mind that I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. Ready yourself for the coming king. Remember the law, but prepare for what I'm going to do ultimately. The bigger, better thing that's coming. If you want to see a picture of an Old Testament prophet, one who steps into the hard-hearted rebellion of sin that, that had really ran through the Jewish people and honestly runs through us. You look to Elijah. Elijah would go into the face of kings and rebuke kings. He preached repentance to these people. He validated every message and every rebuke with signs and miracles. 
And this very Messiah, or this, this very Elijah, would go into these places and he would deal with things in order to take the people to what God would ultimately do. I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, it says. In verse 5, great and terrible, deliverance and destruction, simultaneous. We look to the New Testament Gospels and we see the story of, of John the Baptist who is coming. He is one who is like Elijah. But we even see Elijah later when Jesus meets with Elijah and Moses at the Transfiguration. It's the idea of someone coming who's going to call out all that's wicked in us. In the same way that John called out what was wicked in the Pharisees. These people, the problem with them and the problem with most of us, if we're not careful is they did not expect too much from God. Like, this is not a matter of them saying, God, why haven't you done anything? What they expected from God was too little. They wanted divine intervention. That's what the nation of Israel was always wanting, and that's really what we're asking for. We're asking for God to intervene into the woes and weariness of this broken world. God doesn't offer that. He offers better. God doesn't offer a simple divine intervention jumping in to various moments from, through space and time. God is divinity in a person. God with us. The Spirit of God living in us. Carrying us to be who God has called us to be. Helping us to walk through the difficult, the difficult nature of this life and being with us. They believed the Messiah was just going to be someone who intervened and dealt with Roman rule. They believed that the Messiah would look more like the rock than what Isaiah tells us that he looks like. Where it says that he did not have any impressive form or majesty that we should look to him. It says in the ESV, nobody about him. God in our midst does not actually look like a God in our midst. But God in our midst is better than that. Because he has chosen to be with his people, to be your God, and for you to be his people. The New Testament takes us over and over to the idea of what it means for God to be in us. The divinity of God in a person. This Jesus, His day, it says. This day of the Lord. It says in Luke chapter 17, the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And then Paul goes on and on about the day of the Lord. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, the day of our Lord Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, the day of our Lord 2 Corinthians 1, the day of our Lord. Philippians chapter 1, the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, the day of Christ. The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed, 2 Thessalonians. In the presence of the Lord at His coming, 1 Thessalonians. God is taking us to consider what it means that Jesus will do more, immeasurably more than we realize Verse 6, it says this, the last verse in the book. And he turns the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and I will strike the land with a curse. This is a reimagining of the creative order when we read it in whole. That God is going to restore and make right all that is wrong. That God is going to undo brokenness. That God is going to give life to where decay was taking place. If there's this idea of the curse of sin, who deals with the curse of sin? Mark chapter 1, it says this, after John was arrested, this is the Baptist, not the revelator. John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. 
The time is filled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Dual destruction and deliverance and God offering us to walk with Him toward the better of those two things. That we will be saved from judgment believing that this God wants to be with us. You see in the whole of the Bible that justice and, and justice and goodness they seem to be postponed throughout the scriptures in the same way that the people of Malachi would ask questions like God where are you where are you where are you in the same way that we ask God where are you why won't you deal with this we know that the one who deals with those things is outside of space outside of time yet he is dealing with those in full because he dealt with those on the cross of Jesus where he intervened We believe that God is carrying us through as He intervenes in our lives even now. We believe what John would say to us in the the book of Revelation when he's telling us as to who this Jesus is, telling us who this picture is of the one that we we have met with and that we celebrate. I I, I think it stood out to me the most having a conversation with some teenagers and I was asking why is it that we just don't talk about... Jesus more. I meant that for myself. I meant that for them. I meant that for us. Why is it that this is not like a regular conversation? And all of the reasons that they weren't having that conversation was, well, it's nerve-wracking, and it's overwhelming, and all of those things are true, but all those things aren't why. One seventh-grade boy kind of stuck his hand up, and he said, there are times for me where I just don't believe Jesus is all that great. We have painted a poor picture of who Jesus is. Yes, share your faith. But realize the greatness of whom it is you're sharing. John tells us how great this Jesus is. He he says about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to these seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that had spoken to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eye like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me. And he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. That is who we celebrate as followers of Jesus. Who took our destruction upon himself... So that we could walk away righteous. Who took our despair so that we could have hope. 
who took our death so that we could live. That's our Jesus. And that's who the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to. And that's who our lives are to point to. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Jesus, we believe that you're good. Lord, I pray for those moments where we don't believe that, you'll convict us. Lord, I pray that we'll want to know you and want to celebrate you and want to love you. I pray that the things that take place in our hearts, God, will... Lord, every why, every moment of why does God not do something here, why does God not do something there will simultaneously serve it as a place for us to consider the, what gratitude is. Is that you don't jump in and deal with wickedness actively each day. Otherwise, we would have no hope. Lord, I'm glad that you're not moody. And I pray that I will be less moody. So, Father, help us as we consider all of these things today. As we uh, hopefully will ponder these things in our hearts. That we'll be moved to a deeper relationship with you. One of gratitude and gratefulness. Because, Jesus, you took destruction so that those who would trust in you could be free. Where the cross was a place where you bore the weight of the world. And I pray that we will believe that. And that we will celebrate you as if you're glorious. If you need me, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room.